awesome to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name's Tony. If we haven't met, I uh, look forward to hanging out one of these days. Uh, so I have the privilege of being on staff here at Wellspring. If you've been with us, we've been journeying slowly uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, now, if you've been with us, you also know that 1 Corinthians is a, is a minefield of tricky, tricky questions and problems. Right, 1 Corinthians is not like, you know, these, these guys in Corinth sitting on couches drinking lattes and musing about abstract theological questions. 1 Corinthians is about on-the-ground stuff that's real everyday life, so it's a little gritty and often really tricky. Now, this morning we're going to address one of the most controversial topics in 1 Corinthians and probably the New Testament as a whole. And honestly, this is one of the reasons we teach through books versus just like picking a topical series and then doing one, right, where we can just sort of curate the topics we talk about and avoid really messy and tricky ones like the one we're going to talk about today. But we believe, right, God has a lot to say to us through these tricky passages, and I think that is especially true in our topic this morning. Now, one of the things about tricky topics, though, is that usually... With a controversial or tricky topic, there are faithful and smart people who come up and land in different, different places, right? There's a reason they're tricky. It's because smart and faithful people land in different places as they understand it. The other thing about these topics is they're, they often really matter, right? So to avoid them is to not address a topic that really does impact the life of people, now, this topic in particular doesn't impact one or two people. This impacts almost half or more than half of every church in the world. Half of the world's population. It affects all women and what it looks like for women to participate in church. What does it look like for them to use their gifts? What can they do and what they can't? I'm going to read what Paul writes in 1 uh, Corinthians 14, uh, and then we're going to just spend a bit talking about it. So I mentioned it last week, now we're going to do a little bit deeper dive. Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, these are kind of awkward lines, right, in our historical moment. You know, what do you do with them? Well, what you do with them matters a lot. I asked my wife, Jeannie, to write some of her story. Uh, she's sick this morning, so I'm going to read it for her. This is what she wrote. This is from her story. The passage is Tony is speaking about today are the very ones that nearly derailed me from pursuing full-time ministry after graduating from college. I had been part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for my four years of college, and God transformed me inside and out through that time. My senior year, I went on a missions, to a missions conference and felt called by God to pursue staff work with this organization. But during that same year, some men in our fellowship started attending a church that took a more literal translation of these verses, or these texts, specifically that women cannot teach men and must be silent. For four years, 
these very men had been shaped and transformed by Jesus in our fellowship, which was led by women. But then they began to question our female staff leader and her authority to teach us. And this caused me to doubt. These were my friends. And they called into question whether or not I was to lead at all, even though I had been a key leader in our fellowship since my sophomore year. I'm sure you can imagine the kind of turmoil this caused to my insecure soul. All I wanted was to earnestly follow Jesus. I began to question the call that Jesus gave me. I began to doubt whether or not I could lead. I began to wonder how Paul could say such limiting things to women. That's Jeannie's story. I'll read part two at the end. But when I first read this, it just deeply grieved me, right? Because as a man, there is no text, right, that someone can point to in the Bible and say, oh, no, but Tony, you can't do that because you're a man. Look, look, it says it right here. You can't do it, right? But for Jeannie, she just wanted to use her gifts to please God, to follow Jesus, But she had an additional hurdle. Not only did she have to face the vulnerability that all of us face when we try and use our gifts, right? Because it's vulnerable to try to put yourself out there to use the gifts that God has given you. But then as a woman, she then had to discern on top of what her gifts were, whether she could use them even though she felt like God had called her, right? Because of these texts and the way that men were interacting with her in her fellowship. So this morning... I wanted to take a little time to slow down sort of our pace through 1 Corinthians to explain what I think Paul is doing in this passage in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, which is a similar, has a similar feel, so that we as a church, men and women, are clear about what, at least at Wellspring, we think that God is doing in these passages. Because the truth is, right, this has massive, how we land on this has massive implications for female formation in the church, right? Jeannie's example, but I bet if we polled everyone in the church, right, all the women, like many of them have been impacted by passages like these. But I also want to say, I don't think this is just about women in their formation. This is about the whole church because, you know, this morning, right, Heather was up here singing, but if Heather cannot, if she must be silent, then she cannot even lead us. So it's not just about women and their formation, but men and being able to receive from the gifts of women in the church body. We are all affected by passages like these, depending on how we interpret them. I want to go to the text. So to understand 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. We need to remember a few things. One, in chapter 11, Paul has already said that women can pray and prophesy in the church. He does not tell them to stop. Right? If Paul didn't want women to speak in the church at all, right? if this was a universal silence thing, right? women couldn't do announcements, they couldn't pray, they couldn't talk, say hello in the church right, during the service, and they certainly couldn't pray or prophesy, and yet, Paul does not tell them to stop. Moreover, when you get into chapter 12, which is devoted to gifts and the body, it's the largest section in the New Testament dedicated to body life and gifts. He says nothing about gender. 
at the outset of chapter 14. Paul tells the Corinthians, men and women, to desire to prophesy, to prophesy. Again, no gender limitations. And prophecy is not future prediction. It's much more closely akin to what we would consider teaching. Now, Paul, when he says men and women at the beginning of chapter 14, right, that they should prophesy, he uses the second person plural in Greek, which applies to both genders. Basically saying you may both prophesy, male and female, right? And and as the chapter unfolds, what we see is that there is this super chaotic church service experience going on, right? They're all shouting. They're all talking at once, speaking in tongues with no interpreters. It's a mess, We talked about this last week. So Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to listen to one another. In verse 28, he tells the people who are speaking in tongues to be silent. Same word as he uses in 34. Same word, right? To be silent if there is no interpreter. Verse 30, he tells the men and women, if they don't have something to say, to be silent. So silence has already been highlighted twice in this chapter. And it's within this context that Paul tells the women, be silent. Why? Because they are interrupting the service just like the others. What we're going to see is that each prohibition in chapter 14 is contextually dependent, right? Current to tongues and interpretation, prophecy and interruption, and then women. See, the problem isn't that the women are using their gifts, but rather they're learning too loudly. We have to remember, what does a first century church service look like? Right? They didn't meet in a church building. Not like this, right? They weren't online. Right? They didn't gather for a formal service like we do, right? They, they met in homes. And in the first century, the home was a domestic environment that lay within the, the, the woman's sphere, of influence and responsibility, right? When the, when the church gathered, the women would have exercised hospitality. They would have prepared and served the food, right? And as they're doing it, that, we have to remember there's no amplification. They don't have microphones. They don't have a sound system. And you have to remember that Corinth is an international commercial city, and there's multiple languages that are spoken, More than 90% of the stone inscriptions that survived from Corinth in Paul's day are actually in Latin. So we can easily imagine classical Greek, Koine Greek, which is sort of like street Greek, Latin, and maybe even Hebrew being spoken at the gathering. So the women, right, they're going back and forth, serving, coming in and out, right? They're asking questions. Wait, what just happened? What did it just happen, right? They're asking questions. They're trying to learn. They're trying to understand. Right? They're talking. They're trying to learn, but they're learning kind of loudly. Right? And who can blame them? Right? It isn't like the men are sitting there super quiet like they're in a library. You remember how they're, they're the, the men in Corinth are behaving? Paul tells us right, the men are getting drunk while celebrating communion. The people are all speaking in tongues at once. The prophets are speaking over one another. Right? And the men would have been the people that had way more academic experience. They would have known what proper etiquette was. So the women now follow the men's lead. And what are they doing? They're talking a lot while they're going about their expected first century roles, serving, making sure everyone has what they need during this communal meal when the church met. Right? They're learning too loudly. 
right? So just like with the people that were speaking in tongues, just like to the prophets that are interrupting each other, Paul tells the women as a gender, and this makes sense, right? Because they're, they have particular gender expectations, tells them to stop interrupting, stop asking questions, stop talking so loudly during the service. Now, he tells them that their behavior is shameful, which for us feels a bit harsh. You're like, whoa, Paul, that's a bit much. But shameful is simply a way that to, to, to say that something is culturally inappropriate. Paul doesn't say it's illegal. He doesn't label it immoral. Rather, it's shameful. The cultural equivalent is maybe in English, uh, might be of the Victorian sense of improper. You know, that's improper. That's not how we do things. And this makes sense. In the Mediterranean world, right, novices were expected to learn quietly. Advanced students were allowed to ask questions. It was actually normal for advanced students to interrupt their teacher while they were teaching, right, as a way to learn more about the subject. But asking unlearned questions in the ancient world was considered foolish, rude, shameful. It's not like our culture. In our culture, we say, ask any questions. There's no dumb questions, right? I think we've all heard that in a learning environment. In the first century, no one would have ever said that. They assumed, no, there are dumb questions. And the women, I think we just have to be honest, would have certainly been less educated at that time, right? There was a, a system in place, a patriarchal system that disempowered, disempowered women in the ancient world when it came to education, right? So they would have had less intelligent questions asked because they had learned less up to that point. But notice what Paul does here. He doesn't say to the women, hey, you guys are incapable of learning, which, I might add, most men in the first century would have assumed. Ancient writers, there's numbers of ancient writers that talk about husbands thinking their wives were incapable of learning academic disciplines like theology. Instead, Paul doesn't reinforce this. He actually challenges this view by telling the women to learn. Right? He tells them, remember your questions and when you get home, learn, ask, explore. And this shouldn't surprise us. One, we have to acknowledge the men were almost certainly more educated at that point. That's different in our historical moment. But then the men would have been more educated. So Paul is saying, hey, if you want to learn, that's awesome. Stop interrupting the gathering and learn in a place where it's more appropriate to learn. And Paul has actually said this before. At home is kind of Paul's shorthand for Stop using the gathering, inappropriately using the gathering, and creating distractions. Remember, Paul tells the exact same thing to the people that are coming to the gathering, and they're just wanting to eat tons of food because they're starving. Paul's like, hey, eat at home. You're distracting the gathering. Similarly, he's telling the women, hey, it's awesome to learn, which, by the way, was revolutionary, but your learning is disrupting the gathering. Learn at home. It's a big picture. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul isn't telling the women, or isn't telling women forever to be silent in church. He's actually addressing a very specific situation in Corinth. And I might add that almost no church disagrees with this. I mean, personally, I have literally never been to a church that said women had to be silent once they came into the gathering, right? Once you enter the doors, it's like, well, you better be quiet, you know. Because silence does not mean no teaching. Silence means no talking, no praying, no announcements, 
no singing. I've yet to be a church at a church that actually implements that level of uh, seriousness, right, to Paul's, or that strict literal, literal interpretation of what Paul is saying, right? Because there's contextual factors at play. That's 1 Corinthians 14, which I think actually for most churches is almost never interpreted literally. But the thing is, if we're going to do a deep dive this morning, and we're going to really lean in to this idea of women and formation in a church body, we actually have to go to one other text. Because actually really any comprehensive discussion of women in the New Testament needs to actually address 1 Timothy 2 as well. Now, I'll read it in a moment, but I'd like to set the context of the letter a bit, right? We've spent months in 1 Corinthians. I think we have the feel at this point. If you haven't listened, there's I don't know how many sermons already that are setting the context. But Timothy, we haven't, right? So Timothy is doing ministry in Ephesus, and Paul is trying to help him address false teaching in the church. This is the primary point of the letter. 1 Timothy 1, 3-4 reads, As I urged you, When I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any doctrine, any different doctrine, right? Timothy, make sure people aren't teaching false teachings. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 1 Timothy is all about false teaching in the church. And this false teaching happens to be primarily promoted by women. 1 Timothy uh, 5, 11 through 13, Paul identifies that women are going from house to house spreading these teachings. He writes, verse 13, Besides that, they, women, learn to be idlers, going from house to house, not only idlers, idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. All right, so this word busybody in Greek refers to those spreading false and improper teaching, right? So these women are going from house to house spreading improper false teaching. And we know that these women are then getting other women to adopt these endless genealogies and myths, right, that are not correct teaching. We know this from 2 Timothy 3, 6, because they are Paul is now referring again to this spreading of these false teachings. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. So what do you have this picture? This picture of women going from house to house, right, busybodies, spreading false teaching, getting younger women, sort of trapping them or tricking them into this false teaching them and leading them astray. So women are the primary spreaders of the false teaching, and women are the primary victims of the false teaching in Ephesus, according to Paul. And he's trying to help Timothy deal with it. So then he gives Timothy some directives, some instructions. This is 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right. So that's 2 Timothy. So in context, 
right? We're dealing with false teaching that is primarily spread by women, and Paul then gives a few clear directives. The first directive is to learn. Now, to us, this might feel like an insult. Paul's like, let women learn. But in fact, as we've already said, the idea that women should be educated at all was actually a radical notion in the first century. There's a famous Jewish saying that's unbelievable. It says this, better to burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. Right? There is this profound misogyny at play in the culture. And Paul only issues one command in 1 Timothy 2. It's not not to teach. It's not about authority. Only one, to learn. The one command Paul issues in 1 Timothy 2 is to learn. Why? Why do they need to learn? Because they're spreading false teaching. Paul wants them to correct their theology, which I think is a totally reasonable requirement. Right? We wouldn't have someone teaching a class or up on, up on the stage or whatever, any environment. We would not have them teaching if they were spreading false teaching. We would make sure that they got their theology correct before they stood up and started teaching. It's also important for us to remember that learning isn't simply like for its own sake in the first century. You know, like in our culture, we have these like values for like, oh, I'm going to be a lifelong learner. Like that does not exist in the first century. Remember, we're talking about a rabbinic model of education. Paul is discipled by a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi forming disciples. Rabbinic education is you become your rabbi. Right, you fall in the dust of your rabbi's feet. You become like him. Right? So learning is about becoming like, not simply just learning for its own sake. So there's an example, a story from the life of Jesus that I think teases this out. So for people trained in rabbinic Judaism, which Paul was at the feet of Gamaliel, right, they always learned in order to do. And there's this great story in Luke that I think captures this. This is Luke 10, 38 through 42. Jesus enters into Mary and Martha's house. And the text says that Mary is sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, contextually, we need to address a couple things. First, guests are likely gathered in Mary and Martha's house to listen to Jesus teach. Right? When Jesus went places, crowds followed. We know this. What's unstated here is that Mar- Martha is actually doing was what expected of her culturally. She's serving people. She's making sure they have what they need. Right? This is what first century women would have been expected to do. Yet, it's not what Mary is doing. The text says she is sitting with the men at Jesus' feet, where culturally she is not expected to be. To sit at a rabbi's feet is to say that one is a student of the rabbi. In Acts, Paul says that he has sat at the feet of Gamamiel. This is Acts 22.3. Right? He studied under Gamamiel. And this is exactly what Mary is doing at the feet of Jesus. And you don't just do this right, for the sake of personal learning. You sit at the rabbi's feet in order to become a rabbi, a teacher yourself. And this is important, because if you recall, Martha complains about Mary's choice. Right? She's doing all the serving, she's taking care of any, everyone, and normally, right, the women would have sort of banded together and helped out. 
And yet, it is in this moment right, that Jesus totally opposes the gender customs of his day and says, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Right? Jesus pushes back on the gender assumptions of his day, defending Mary's right to learn and follow him with the hopes that one day she will become like him, a rabbi and a teacher. So here, right, when we get to 1 Timothy, when Paul encourages women to learn, he isn't just hoping they'll enjoy a morning devotional. The whole point of following a rabbi, of rabbinic education, of learning is to become like your rabbi. A disciple is a learner in Greek. So by telling the women to learn, he's actually opening the doors to teaching. Learning was essentially pre-teaching or getting ready to teach, to pass on what you have learned. Right, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that their learning should be done quietly. But again, right, this is just how learning worked in the first century. You listened to the teacher before you started asking in with your questions. And then he says that learning should be done with all submissiveness. Paul's just simply saying, like, have an attitude of receptivity. Notice here in verse 11, Paul says nothing about men. He doesn't tell the women to be submitted to their husbands or even male church leadership. Given the context, these women have been submitted to false teachers. Paul is simply saying here, hey, now I want you to submit, to learn under orthodox teaching and the authority of the leaders in the church. Don't just go your own way, spreading your own doctrine, perpetuating these myths and genealogies. Submit yourself to orthodox teaching that you might learn. Right, that's the first directive, is to learn, which is a command. The second directive is not to teach, right? Don't teach or have authority over a man. Now, having established this positive command to learn, he then puts a temporary limitation on women as they learn. Specifically, he denies women who are spreading this false teaching the ability to teach or exercise authority over men. Now, in Greek, it's really important, because you read in English, you think, I do not permit, and you think, okay, like, that seems like it might last forever. But in Greek, I permit no woman to teach is not a command. And it's in the present active indicative. It's a particular Greek, Greek tense, which is more translated like, I am not presently allowing women to teach. In fact, there are no examples in the New Testament or the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, in which this verb, in this particular form, present active indicative first person singular for those who like Greek, that indicates or implies perpetual ordinance. There's no example of this verb in this tense saying this lasts forever. Right? It is always timely and specific. It's always contextual. Right? So certain women are putting themselves in a position to teach before they've been ta properly taught. Paul's like, hey, I don't want you guys teaching. He has a specific word to this specific context that is timely and specific. Right? Nowhere else in the New Testament does Paul suggest that teaching is to carry gender restrictions. Nowhere else. The one passage in the New Testament that specifically prohibits women from teaching is addressed to the one church where women are spreading false teaching. And there's more. Paul writes, right, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. 
Now, this is often used to justify that women, right, can't be leaders or have positions of authority in the church. But that is actually not what this word authority means in Greek. So, usually the neutral word for authority is exousia, but that's not the word used here. When you look at Greek literature, well, let's just say this. This word is only used once in the entire New Testament, here. And when you look at Greek literature, this word is used over 300 times, and it never refers to a good, kind leader who cares deeply for people. It always refers to harming, forcing someone against their will, or imposing one's will over another. Yeah, don't exercise authority over men. Do not impose your will over them. Paul is simply saying to the women, don't dominate the men as they spread this false teaching. Right? And when you lean into the context of Ephesus, this makes a ton of sense. In Ephesus, there's this great temple dedicated to Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. It dominated the economy of Ephesus, and it profoundly influenced the life of the city. And, importantly, it was led by female virgins who only shared leadership with men if the men were castrated to illustrate female dominance in the temple. N.T. Wright, who's a British theologian, writes, women ruled the show and kept men in their place. They exercised authority over them. Right? So it's not surprising if this influenced, it would not be surprising if this influenced how women were interacting with men in the church context. And Paul is like, hey, this is not how we treat one another. We don't exercise dominance over one another, especially in this case, where the authority, the dominance is used to perpetuate false teaching. Right? You're actually pressuring people to believe things that are untrue. And then Paul goes back in 13 and 14 to creation and Eve. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, some people think, okay, well, this is obviously, this is not just to that cultural moment because he's referring to Adam and Eve, and that must mean it lasts forever. Ah, not so much. Because if you go back to that context, what you see is this. Right? Adam is formed first, and he is told, he is taught, he learns the rules of the garden. Eve is made second, but she is actually not told by God about the rules for the garden. As a result, Eve is deceived by the serpent, which leads to the fall. Now, this is profoundly relevant to what is happening in Ephesus. Right? Paul is concerned about deception. He is concerned about false teaching. Eve is deceived by the snake. She then perpetuates the sin by giving the fruit to Adam. So what Paul's doing here is he's echoing back to Genesis. He's providing a story that reinforces his prescription, learning before teaching. Right? The women in Ephesus need to learn so they are not deceived like Eve. Eve was deceived in part because she didn't actually know the rules well enough to resist the temptation, right? Adam didn't communicate them to her well enough. And here Paul is saying to the women, learn so that you are not deceived and then deceive others. It's also just worth saying 
uh, that in first or Second Corinthians eleven three, Paul suggests that deception can happen to anyone, male or female. Right? It's not like Paul is saying that women somehow have an infer- inherent flaw and are more easily deceived. In fact, when you go back to Romans, Romans five twelve, Adam is actually singled out as the one who is culpable for sin entering in the world, not Eve. Now, I just want to say one quick thing about this childbirth comment because it just feels like, wait, what, what are you talking about? Women are going to be saved through childbirth? Like, seriously, Paul? Like, what do you mean? But again, we need to go back to the context. We need to go back to the temple, right? Artemis, who happened to also be the goddess of childbirth. And remember, there's all kinds of myths being perpetuated that are connected to this false teaching. It's likely that some of these myths are connected to Artemis. So Paul is saying here, hey guys, Artemis won't save you. God will. Specifically, you will be saved through childbirth because Mary will give birth to Jesus who will be your Savior. He's not saying that if they have kids, they will be saved. But specifically, Mary giving birth to Jesus will lead to their salvation, not Artemis. Right? The goddess of childbirth who is the goddess sort of worshipped in Ephesus. All right. I realize that's a lot to take in, um, but I just want to do a quick summary, right? So that's sort of 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. What's clear to me is that the only place where women's gift use might be limited are the exact places where contextual factors really clearly explain their limitation, right? There are no other texts in the New Testament that limit women using their gifts, and there's actually lots of texts that suggest a more fundamental equality between men and women, right? Galatians 3.28, as an example, there is neither male nor female. And there's actually tons of examples of women in the Old Testament and the New using their gifts in all kinds of ways. And actually, next week, we're just going to focus on that. This week, we're focusing on potential limitations. Next week, we're going to go through and just go through all the ways that women are using their gifts in the whole Bible, so I think it's totally reasonable to presume that the prohibition in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 were actually circumstantial and were meant, not meant to be applied throughout all of church history. But I do want to just say, though, that this doesn't mean that we're not taking the Bible seriously. I, I just think it's important to say this, right? Context really does matter. Paul tells, in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to drink wine for his stomach in 1 Timothy 5. Right? But when's the last time you saw a church policy on wine and stomach aches? Right? You don't. It's contextual. Paul tells Timothy that only widows over 60 who have been married once can receive church help, right? assuming financial. But I don't know of one church that has a policy that says only women over 60 that have been married. Right? Why? It's contextual. Paul is writing a letter to a person, Timothy, for a specific situation in Ephesus. What we take from texts like these is we should care for windows, widows. And I think from 1 Timothy, we, we understand like, hey, you don't have people teach that really shouldn't be teaching. Right? If they're spreading false teaching, they should be learning under submitted to orthodox teaching before they can teach others. Now, next week, again, we're going to lean into Old Testament and New Testament, what women actually do in the Bible, not simply potential places of limitation. 
And we're actually going to do a Q&A. We're going to do a live Q&A um, for our in-person gathering. Um, so my hope is, you know, if you're sort of watching online, maybe next week, if you want to come for our live gathering, we're going to have a live Q&A uh, where we can actually dig into some of these questions and handle and receive questions and try and give responses as much as possible. We realize, right, there's really smart people and really faithful people that don't totally agree here. We want to create space for discussion. Aaron will be there. We'll have some of our female staff up there too as a way to sort of increase the voice so it's not just a bunch of dudes up here teaching about the Bible and what women can do, but allowing space for women to be able to share their perspectives as well. Now, as we sort of come to a close this morning, uh, the beginning I shared Jeannie's story. I want to, I left off uh, where she was sort of in this place of doubt. This is how she shifts. This is how she finishes the story. But with the help of an encouraging community, extensive reading, and Jesus' nudging, I realized that not only were Paul's teachings contextual, they were actually revolutionary. Not limiting, but empowering. I chose to follow the call of God. I went, to full, I went on to full-time ministry. God used me as a woman to revitalize our local church's outreach to college students. We went from 9 to 70 students in my first year. I led several people to Christ that year. I later went on to serve at Stanford University and then pioneer a fellowship at San Jose State. I say that all this not to boast, but reveal all that would have been lost had I not listened to Jesus. All this would not have happened had I remained silent and not led. And I've finished kind of with Jeannie's story because I think it captures the importance of texts like these. And how they really, depending on where we land, can make a massive impact on people's life. And this is why we need to wrestle with them. This is why we need to have spaces where we lean in, even if they're uncomfortable topics, we need to lean in, create a space for learning, a space for dialogue, a space for growth. Now, three things really stand out to me uh, as it hits the ground for us, sort of on an applied level. The first is this. I just really, I'm so reminded this week of how much theology impacts life. I sometimes we're like, oh, that's just theology. It's just a big idea. No, no, no. This actually really matters. And this is why it's so important to lean into topics that are uncomfortable. There's two books I want to encourage you. If you're, one, if you want to chat with someone, Aaron and I are available. Uh, Kathy Pope would love to meet with you. If there are questions you have, please reach out to us. I also want to give two resources um, we can put them online so you know, but one is a book called Two Views, Women in Ministry. Um, I'll, I'll have it available if you want to borrow it, but also uh, we'll put a link up. Uh, but this book basically goes through two different views, so smart, faithful people that land in two different positions. But just want to say, I think that could be a good one if you're wanting to hear both sides of the topic and where smart people land, uh, just to kind of get a broad sense of where people land. Another book is called Discovering Biblical Equality. Um, it's complementarity with, uh, without hierarchy. Uh, the contributing editor is Gordon Fee. But this is a ton of essays that basically deal with all kinds of different questions you could have from the scriptures. Really smart people, uh, a little more academic. So if you want kind of like, you know, a lot of info about how sort of riffing off what I talked about today, 
check that one out. If you're interested in sort of both sides of the discussion, the Two Views book is a great place to start. Encourage you, check it out. If you want other articles or stuff, email Aaron. He'll have great ones, better than me. Um, the second thing I want to say is, as I read through these passages and just thought about Jeannie's story, it reminds me how much I as a man and we as men have a part to play in how our sisters thrive and flourish in this church. I want to challenge all the men that are listening this morning to take time this week to consider what are you doing in your life to help the women in your life fulfill their calling in Jesus? It could be your mom, it could be your daughter, spouse, friend, niece, whatever. What are you doing to help them? Maybe pick one or two. Fulfill their calling in Jesus. If you don't know, I think you should think about it. And I want you concretely this week, I want you to talk to one or two of those women in your life. And I want you to affirm and encourage the gifts that you see in their life. Find a quiet moment and actually affirm and encourage them. Take a moment to say, ah, oh, man, I see the way God has gifted you to be used in this body. And maybe even just say a prayer and a blessing over them. Three, reflecting on this passage and Jeannie's experience, uh, ladies, I just want to invite you this week. I want you to name out loud a few ways that Jesus has gifted you. And I want you to do it. I want you to bring someone, bring a friend over, or bring a girlfriend, whoever, your spouse, and I want you to say it out loud to someone. Because the truth is, in our culture, we never do this. We don't say things out loud like, I feel I'm good at this. Right? We feel like it's bragging, or we feel like it's like not okay. But I think there's a power. There is a power in saying something like this out loud to another person. I think I'm gifted at this. I invite you to say it to another person this week as a way of just breaking the power of silence, breaking the power of hiding where you're kind of like, I don't know, you know, a way of saying, God, no, I, I think this is a way for you to praise God that he has made you this way. It's not about you taking credit. It's about you saying, yes, Jesus has made good things in me. And if you can't think of anything, I still want you to find a friend, someone you trust, someone you know will honor you, and I want you to say, I, don't, I can't think of anything. Because there's a power there. And I think there can be prayer ministry there. Because the truth is, Jesus has given you gifts. But sometimes we internalize lies about ourselves. Maybe that others have spoken over us. And I think we need to break the power of those lies by coming to another person and saying, I don't even know how I'm gifted. Can you please pray over me and break the lies that are affecting me? Wellspring, I just want our church to be a place where women and men flourish. I want to become the people that Jesus has made us to be that we faithfully follow his invitation. 
God, I just am so grateful for the ways that you have gifted and equipped the men and women in this body. God, I am particularly grateful for the women you have brought into this place who have just done such incredible work in this place. God, I am so grateful for them, their willingness to take a risk and use their gifts. And God, we pray in this moment, we pray for a spirit of humility in this place as we wrestle with tricky topics. God, that we would honor you throughout the whole process. God, I ask for the men in this body that we would take seriously, God, we would take seriously the power of our words and our posture towards the women in our life. That we might be the kind of people that empower and encourage not a people that stand in the way, not a people that block our sisters from flourishing, God, as you would have them. And God, I pray for the women in this church that they would experience a new and a fresh freedom to follow you with all of their heart, however you might lead, God. God, we pray against the power of lies that hold us back. In your name, Jesus, we just say we break those lies in your name. That you have gifted every single person in this body, man and woman, woman and man, to bring honor to you through the gifts that you have given them. God, unleash those gifts. That everything we do might bring you glory. In the power of your name we pray. Amen.